0: I don't know if you remember when you were at school, posing for a school photograph. So we would all traipse into the the gym or the school sports hall and we'd pose and um, we'd stand there and have our photo taken for posterity. And years later you, you dig out that photo, you find it somewhere hidden in the loft or somewhere down the back of the wardrobe You see yourself, a younger version of yourself, and you you cringe when you see the way you looked, your hairstyle, and then you realize everybody else had hairstyles like that as well. And you think that moment was frozen in time. We were all there in that hall, in that place. We were all starting out on life's journey, full of youthful promise and possibilities. The world was our oyster. You know, everything seemed possible. You know what it's like when you're young. And you think back, you think, what, what has time done to us? What have the years done to us, to all these people in the photograph? And Of course, if you were to go to a school reunion, I'd never been to one. I don't think I'd ever like to go to one. But if you went to a school reunion, you'd see all these people, some of these people, and you'd find out, wouldn't you, how their lives have worked out how things have gone for them, whether they achieved their goals, fulfilled their dreams, whether they made a right mess of things, you'd find out. Imagine you could do the same thing with a group of Christians. So perhaps you're one of those people that experienced many years ago a great work of God when God was working in his church and lots of people became Christians all at the same time. I know some of you have been in churches where the Spirit of God appears to be working in a special way. And it's very precious. You think, wow, all these people are being saved, being baptised. Or perhaps it would be a group that you served with in some ministry somewhere. Or people that you were baptised with at the same time. If you were to take a photograph of that group of people, those Christians... And years later, come back together. How would their lives have worked out? How would your life have worked out? You started with so much optimism. It started out on the Christian journey together. But where did it all lead? I'm sure there will be encouragements and discouragements in such a group. Recently we had beloved Pastor Phil's um, anniversary, and we had lots of people from the past coming together and I'm sure you had a, a sense of that reunion of finding out how people's lives had gone. Why is it that some Christians make it make it why is it that some Christians don't make it? Why is it that some Christians go on to Christian maturity? Show fruitful Christian lives, and others just seem to crash and burn somewhere along the way. Why do some persevere and keep going, and others just drift away back into the world? And if we were to take a photograph of this group of people, and in 10 years' time look back on it, how many of us would be persevering and going on with the Lord? And how many of us would not be amongst God's people anymore? Jerome shared very helpfully last week um, about Jesus and the opposition he was facing from the Pharisees, increasingly so in these days. We're starting a new section of teaching where Jesus begins to use parables, stories to teach the people. Next week, I'll be looking a bit more about why Jesus used parables. But today, we have a parable before us. And it is such a very familiar parable, isn't it? You know, dear friends, we need to be so careful that we don't become so familiar with the truths of God's word that the very thing this parable warns us about befalls us. That it just washes over us. If I were to win a prize, and the prize was a gourmet meal at the Grand Hotel, I've never been to such a place. I would go there and I would enjoy the finest affair laid out before me. And it would be a very special occasion. I might even dress up for the occasion. But if I were to suddenly come into a lot of money, my rich fictional uncle died and I could afford to to eat there every single day. After a while, that food will become rather commonplace. It won't be special anymore. Dear friends, let let us not become like that with these great and precious truths. You're all sitting there, you think you know the parable of the sower. And you could teach it, and you probably could. But please, let's not forget the impact of these words and the importance of these words. This is deadly serious. And it contains both an encouragement, but also a warning as well. pay attention to how you listen says Jesus take heed how you hear if you want a happy end in your Christian life if you want to come to a fruitful conclusion of your life and not fall by the wayside you and I need to take this parable very seriously this is a story about a sower a farmer he went out to sow his seed Look in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Teaches the crowds in parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Just as the farmer went out into his field, so the Lord Jesus comes out of the house where he's been teaching his disciples privately. He comes out, he emerges, he goes out and he teaches the people publicly publicly. From a boat on the shore where they can all hear him gathered on the beach, hanging on his every word. The farmer goes to his field, takes his his good seed and he scatters it abroad across the whole field. In the same way, Jesus preaches the word to all kinds of hearers, to all that would gather. He preaches the word and spreads it abroad to them. I want you to imagine for a moment the patch of land, the field that the sower is working on, that he's sowing. I don't think it would have been a manicured, beautifully prepared, modern field that you would see today as you're driving along an A road somewhere, you would see this lovely ploughed field. This was a rocky country, a dry country. Scratching a living from that land was hard. And this is probably a patch of land where the farmer goes out and he spreads his seed. And he he can't discern where the soil is good and where it's not good, where the rocks are. He just spreads the seed abroad, across the field. And eventually the seed would grow, it would sprout up, and it would become clear and evident what kind of soil lay underneath. But it wouldn't be obvious at first. Jesus says in verse 4, some of the seed fell along the path. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Along the edge of the field, there would have been a rock-hard strip of land that had been trodden by countless feet, walking back and forth over it, compacting it to a very hard surface. And you can imagine the seed that the sower planted, spread, would land on that path, and it would just lay there in the heat of the day, in the sun. People would walk over it. That, so- that seed had no chance of germinating. had no chance of springing up. It was just lying there on a flat, compact piece of soil. And then what happens? Well, if you've sowed seeds before, you know that birds always seem to be attracted. You see a farmer sowing somewhere and there's always a big flock of birds. This is exactly what happens to the seed on the path. The birds spot it, they come and Peck it up as quickly as possible. And it has no chance to germinate, let alone grow. What does Jesus say this represents? Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path, says Jesus. Let me say something to you, friends, which is very important for us to understand. That lack of understanding in the Bible is not a matter of intellectual shortcomings. It's not a matter of the mind, of understanding in that sense. In the Bible, a lack of understanding, a lack of wisdom is a moral failure. People ought to understand they are guilty, they are held guilty, they are blameworthy for not understanding. If the word of God is preached faithfully and the messenger is faithful, the message and the messenger are not at fault. But it's a problem that people's hearts are so hard that they do not receive the word of God. Understanding, when Jesus says that these people do not understand, he's not just talking about as I said, the mental ability to understand and process information. It's not just about understanding words or concepts. It's perfectly possible for someone to understand exactly what Christians believe, exactly what the Bible is saying, and yet to go away completely not understanding it in the sense that Jesus means here. How awful to understand with your brain, with your mental capacity, what the Bible says, what Jesus is preaching, and yet go away completely unmoved by it, unchallenged by it, unconvinced by it. When Jesus talks about understanding the word, he talks. I think he's talking about understanding, comp- comprehending, and deeply taking in the word that's preached. The implications of it, and the need to respond to it. What what do we do if we see people around us? There are so many people in our society who are so hard-hearted about the gospel and stubborn, and they refuse to believe. What do we do? What would help these people? What would open their eyes and help them to understand the truth? Well, of course, we proclaim the gospel as as clearly as we can. We use all the means at our disposal, apologetics, giving reasons for what we believe, engaging with what people are concerned about. Of course, we do that if we can But these things by themselves will not be enough to convince people who lack this understanding that Jesus speaks of. The Pharisees who opposed Jesus, they were learned men. They were vastly intelligent, I'm sure. They knew their scriptures. They they didn't fail to receive Jesus because they didn't understand in that sense. They failed to receive him because their hearts were calloused. hard they hated jesus they hated what he represented they hated who he was and in a sense they hated the god who sent him no matter how much explanation you give some people they will not believe and understand in this sense and you can teach them all day long and they will not receive it because their hearts are hard you and I both know people who, would, who might be here and hear a beautifully crafted gospel sermon with a, a passionate message and brilliant illustrations and far better than anything I could do. You could have a world-class preacher standing here. And you, think, you go away, you think that, that must convince them. That must have done the trick. Nobody could go away not understanding. And yet you talk to them afterwards. And it's clear they haven't understood. They're indifferent. They're unmoved. When the gospel is preached, some people go away just not getting it at all. I, think of, I often talk about my Muslim acquaintance. I love this. Last week, my heart was so full of love for this man. I want this man to be saved. But I think of him. He just doesn't get it. I talk about the gospel. I explain to him. He asks me all kinds of questions. I explain as best as I can. He doesn't understand It's all just like gibberish to him, nonsense. How can you believe stuff like that? A man dying on the cross for my sins. That's an example of somebody who doesn't understand because his heart is hard. Other people go away in a different sense, they go away angry and belligerent and offended because you've preached the gospel. How can you still believe this rubbish in this day and age? And then there are other people who come away. Their hearts are also hard. They hear the gospel and they claim to be Christians and they go out completely unmoved by the preached word. They live just just as they did before without taking it in a word at all. It's gone in one ear and come out the other. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is speaking of, I believe, here. People whose hearts are hard in all sorts of ways. Whatever it might look like in their individual cases. These are like the people that... These are like the soil that was... The path that the sea fell on and just bounced off and the birds came and pecked it away. We know actually the Bible, Jesus says here, the evil one, the devil, actually has a role in this. He comes and snatches away the word that's planted. And you will find people like this in every congregation where the gospel is preached. People who just do not get it because their hearts are hard. It's not a mental issue, it's to do with their hearts. Then there's the soul that fell in rocky places. Look at verses 5 and 6. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. So in this case, there was a part of the field that had a layer of rock, and over that rock was a layer of soil, a thin layer of soil. The seed fell on it, the seed germinated, it sprang up quickly, But after that, the hot Middle Eastern sun beat down upon that seed. It tried to put down roots, but it couldn't because the rock was just underneath. And what happened? It just withered away and died. In verse 20, Jesus explains what this represents. And this might be you. I hope it isn't, but it might be. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Dear friends, there is a type of person who hears the word of God, who hears the gospel, and they at once receive it with great joy, with great enthusiasm. The problem is their emotions have been stirred. It's very possible to stir people's emotions with good preaching and thumping music and stringed instruments and all kinds of devices and rhetoric and arguments and people are stirred by it and say, this sounds good, I want to embrace this. But the trouble is, there's no root. There's no conversion. The heart of the person hasn't been changed. This is deeply troubling, isn't it? There's such a thing as a partial reformation. I think uh, Jerome was talking about last week. People can reform themselves. They can change the outside and fool everybody, including themselves. But actually, there is no heart change. What happens to this poor, deluded soul? They start out well. Everybody thinks it's fantastic. And as soon as they get the inevitable persecution or trouble or opposition they immediately or pretty soon go right back to the world and they're completely consumed by the world they left before or they said they left before. Last night, I was driving home from the the international cafe and I thought, put the radio on, Radio 5, and listen to the football results and maybe the news. There was a debate, there was an interview with two men who'd been in Northern Ireland and they were moaning and complaining about the fact that a certain type of marriage is not legal in that part of the country. And the, the, I was shocked by the journalist, how biased he was, and how these men misrepresented the Bible. And then the journalist asked them, what about Christians, people who sincerely believe that their, their God will not allow them to accept this type of marriage? Do they have a right to believe that? And these men said, no, this is disgusting. They have no right to believe that or preach that. So have you seen what's going on there? He wasn't just saying they're wrong and we disagree with them. We'll have a respectful debate about that. He was saying, no, they have no right to say that. This is disgusting. That's the word he used. And there had another guy on there who was just quoting the Bible and misquoting it. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. The Bible, blah, de blah, blah. And I realize that the tone against Christians in this country, the tide is turning in some very significant but hidden ways, that it's almost blasphemy to stand up for Christian principles. Don't think this persecution just happens in other countries. Nobody here is being put to death. We don't suffer like people in, you know, brothers and sisters in other lands do, but there is the heat is being turned up for those who would stand by the word of God and preach biblical Christianity. Of course, it's possible to embrace a kind of craven, cowardly, fake Christianity where you just go along with all this stuff and still claim to be a Christian. But That's also like going back to the world. But if you mean to stand by the word of God and say, I will not flinch, I will not turn back on God's word, whatever it costs me, there will be a cost. Perhaps we'll find that out in, in days to come. Think about Jesus' listeners. They would have faced persecution and opposition from the Pharisees had they aligned themselves with Jesus. They knew what it was to count the cost. I remember when I was growing up in the church, there was an annual Christian event that all the young people of the church, apart from me, went to. I think I was a bit old for it at the time. Every year they went to this conference. They came back raving about it. It was really full of music and all this kind of stuff, bands and rappers and all kinds of stuff. And every, every time they would get baptised, there'd be a whole cohort of young people lining up to be baptised in the church. And every single one of them said the same thing. Oh, I gave my life to Jesus at this event. Now, it seemed to me, I, I don't know the hearts of people, that their, their, their testimonies were a bit shallow and superficial. Wouldn't it be easy to be at an event like that and to hear all the music and be surrounded by your friends and all, all the music and the hype and to make an emotional response to Christ and say, I want to be a Christian without really understanding the gospel. I wonder, where are these young people today? I've got no way of knowing. I pray that many of them are still walking with the Lord. What good is that? What good is an emotionally charged profession of faith that doesn't lead to anywhere. The slightest bit of trouble, when all your friends are taken away, when you go to university for the first time, when you're alone at home, without the support around you, will you stand when the pressure is on to conform, to be like your non-Christian friends, to do what the world does? Will you count the cost? Well, some people will not, and they will fall away, according to this. We've all... We've all known Christians or professing Christians. We've seen them at the very dawn of their profession of faith. We've rooted for them. We've prayed for them. We've baptized them. We've supported them. We've rejoiced over them. We've expected great things from them. We think, this, this young man, this young woman, what a conversion. What a powerful, powerful testimony. How much joy they have in their lives. And yet, a few years down the line, we find out they're no longer walking with the Lord. What was it that caused them to turn back? Well, I believe in many cases it's persecution, love of the world, love of the approval of men, of people, at the expense of their obedience to the Lord Jesus. Dear friends, the gospel is both free and it's costly, isn't it? It's a free gift by grace, but it's costly. It's going to cost us something. There's a cross to be carried. There's a self to be denied. There's a, the flesh to be mortified, put to death. And the true Christian who is truly converted, as the Holy Spirit, has that root going down, drawing endless, boundless supplies of strength from God. The Holy Spirit, the word of God, the promises that Phil mentioned this morning, in that excellent exposition of that psalm. That true Christian says, you can take away anything. Take away my, my home, my job, my dignity, my self-respect, my reputation, even my family, even my life. But I will not turn my back on my Lord Jesus. I don't say that lightly, it's not an easy thing to say. But that is the mark of a true Christian who perseveres. We need to be very careful, don't we, that we don't resort to easy believism and partial reformation. In the church. In some ways, we could easily fill this church if we wanted to. We could fill it with people and get them to make professions of faith, to say they're Christians, to say a certain prayer, to get baptized. I don't think it's that difficult to do that, actually, through manipulation. But it would only be a matter of time before they fell away. You could teach them to behave like Christians. But if the heart has not been changed, the Spirit of God is not there, there is no union with Christ. It's only a matter of time before they fall away. And often they will be in a worse condition than they were before. What good is that, dear friends? Is that what we want, just to fill the place and see people falling away? Let's pray for a deep and profound heart work, a Holy Spirit work that converts people, that saves people, that changes people irrevocably, irrevocably. I wrote this prayer, Lord, I'm a coward and I'm scared. Help me to be your man or your woman when the pressure is on, when there's opposition, when there's a price to be paid and a cost to be counted. Help me, Lord, not to betray you or turn back. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, moving swiftly on, in verse 7, there's another type of soil. Other seed, verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant. Every gardener, and I, you know me, I dabble in gardening as well, but I'm not a proper gardener. A gardener knows how quickly weeds can take over a garden. This is exactly what happened to the seed in this parable. So it fell onto good soil, it sprang up, started to develop and grow, it looked promising. But there were thorn roots mixed in with that soil. There are certain types of weeds, you chop them down, you leave a tiny bit of root in the soil And they come up again, and they're the bane of your life. That's what happened here. The the thorns, the thistles just grow up and choke the seed, so it can't get any light. The fledgling seedling just growing up is destroyed and quenched by the, the thorns coming up. And it ends up tiny, feeble, and fruitless. In the same way, says Jesus, there are some people who hear the gospel But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. Notice there are two dangers here that Jesus talks about. The first one is a sinful worry. And the second is a sinful desire, a craving for the things that the world craves after. And these are deceitful. Riches are deceitful because they promise a lot and deliver nothing but ruin and destruction. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew six twenty-five to 34. He said the unbelieving world, the pagan world, runs after all these things, and our Heavenly Father knows we need them. But what would he have us do? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he promises that all these things will be given to us as well. Friends, what a danger it is for our souls, Our unnecessary worry, worrying about things that we ought not to worry about, that we ought to give to the Lord and not let them consume us and take over our lives. Be aware, please, of the distractions of this unnecessary, fretful, anxious worrying that can cripple a Christian. Also, be aware of preoccupation. Preoccupation with vain and worthless things. Be aware of a failure to trust God and a failure to seek first his kingdom because these things are major enemies of Christian fruitfulness. And all of us in this room, I I dare say every single person in this room is in danger of this or at risk of this. Don't say it couldn't happen to you. It might already be happening to you. I certainly know this in my heart. Do you? Worry? Looking at other things? Preoccupation? Now, of course, we have to live in this world. We have to go to work, put food on the table, bring up children, take them to school. These things are not bad. But we need to be careful that we're not led astray by wrong priorities. Have you ever met a Christian who seems to have got stuck somewhere along the way? They're running a good race. They got bogged down somewhere. They, you imagine a runner running. They get stuck in a swamp somewhere in the countryside, the slough of despond. Like that. They just get sucked down and they're going nowhere fast. Often I believe it's because they fail to grasp this and take it seriously. These people still consider themselves to be Christians. They haven't turned their back on the faith. But it soon becomes clear that the things that occupy their minds are not the things of God's kingdom. But actually things that the unbelieving world chases after. Desperately chasing after. I just listed a few of these things. You can add more. Your own list. Popularity. Success. Comfort. Ease. Wealth. Relationships. Career. Hobbies. Self-fulfillment. Whatever else it might be, it all comes down to one thing. Worship of self. And as good as some of these things are, you cannot allow these things to become rivals because we have a jealous God, a God who will will not stand for any rivals to his affections. If, If you're not careful, you can end up having a Christian faith that is not much more than an empty shell of what it should be. There are former pastors and missionaries, and I know some of them who seem to have ended up like this because they've been consumed by the world, and the weeds have choked their spiritual zeal. Think about when you were younger, that hotshot young man in the church who seemed to be going places, who was preaching, who was praying so zealously. Think about that girl who sang in the church and spoke so lovingly of Jesus. And you meet them years later, you think, what on earth has happened to you? And in some cases, the saddest thing of all, friends, is when they, you look at them and they acknowledge you. You say, Oh, you're not going to church anymore? Oh, yeah, but uh, I'm just too busy, and I'll go back one day. They almost acknowledge. They know they've lost their way. There's an awkwardness there. They look you in the eye. You think, I remember when you were so zealous. What happened? So sad. This is reality, friends. I know people like this. Still call themselves Christians. Still pray. Still go to church from time to time. But there's not that zeal for the Lord. You try to encourage them. You say, come back to the Lord. Come back to your first love. They look at you sadly like that rich young ruler. And they walk sadly away. And they, you see it in their eyes. They know they want to come back, but they haven't got the strength to turn their back on the world. Remember, friends, that fawns do not grow up overnight in this story, do they? Fawns don't just spring up one morning, they're there. They grow gradually. They develop And some of you may well know this in your life. You see that the thorn's creeping in. And that seed of your spiritual life is in danger. And you have an enormous privilege. That soul could do nothing. That soul is an anima. You are a sentient being. You can do something about the weeds in your life. If you see them, if you have ears to hear, we can do something. We can stop this. We can come to God and say, Lord, help me. Stop this. Forgive me. Help me come back to my first love. Friends, don't go past the point of no return when it gets, it's too late. Let us keep watch unto ourselves. Don't coast along in the Christian life. Don't be casual and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. Just rock up to church and maybe read the Bible. This is deadly serious, isn't it? Yes, God preserves us. God keeps us. But we have a role to play walking closely with our God, using the means of grace. Don't end up with a compromised, fruitless Christian life that goes nowhere. It's so unsatisfactory and awful. The longer it goes on, the harder it gets to turn back from the brink. You get to the point eventually where you're no longer listening to the word of God. You can't hear it. You're, you become hardened again. It's not all bad news though because there's good soil. Look at verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. What does Jesus say in verse 23? The one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces the crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This represents somebody who hears the word of God. And understands it and receives it in its truest sense. The word becomes part of him. The word consumes him. The word enters deep within. Into the inmost places. There is a work of conversion. The Holy Spirit has made him into a new creature in Christ. As Luke says in his version of this parable. The man hears it, retains it and perseveres to bear a crop. Friends, if you... If you're starting out on that Christian journey, remember this. It's not about how you start. It's about how you persevere. Every day of my life, till I drop, I'm going to persevere and bear fruit by God's grace for my Lord. God has planted a seed. The farmer plants seed. He hopes for a harvest. God has planted seeds and he's looking for a harvest. Imagine the disappointment of the sower to come to his field and find out yellow patches where where the, the rock had been underneath or where the thorns are taken over. But imagine his delight in seeing the good, growing corn, strong and healthy, promising a fine harvest. What kind of fruit does God produce in us? Well, of course, we know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Thank you. Those things... Fruit of the character of a Christian. But also so many other things as well. Love. Love for God. Love for men. Uh, concern for souls. Concern for the lost. Christ-likeness. in increasing measure. Christian maturity. How we need mature Christians. Wise Christians. Wisdom. Effectiveness for the gospel. Service for the Lord. Your, your service should be growing. Your usefulness for the Lord should grow and develop as you go along as a Christian. Deepening conviction. The things that you believed 10 years ago, you believe now in even greater measure because you've lived them for so many years. You've lived them out. Kingdom priorities, that should grow as well. Increasing desire for the things of God, not the things of this world, which are so useless and tawdry. Endurance. The ability to keep going. Dust yourself off when you fall down, get up again and keep on looking to the Lord. And get this as well, an ability to, to learn more. Just like the disciples, that like the heart of the matter was there. Their hearts were like the good soul. They'd received it. They'd be given understanding and they could receive more teaching. And if you're a Christian, a mature Christian, you should be in a position to receive more and more and more wisdom and insight as you go along the Christian life and to teach other people as well and the ability to go on hearing God's word because wouldn't it transform things if we came to church when we heard the word of God preached we said this is God's word spoken to me I don't just need to hear it when I'm converted I need to hear it every single week and not just once a week I need to be hearing God speaking to me I'm going to pray for the preacher this week that he would rightly divide the word of truth, that I might hear God's voice speaking to me and I might be changed by it. And by doing so, I might grow in fruitfulness to the Lord. That's what we come to church for. One of the reasons to hear the word of God proclaimed to us as God speaks to us. We go on hearing it and delighting in it and being transformed by it, or we should do in any case. We're not interested, I'm, I'm coming to the end now, we're not interested in a church full of people making empty professions people who won't last the course we want to see this lasting fruit may we be an extremely fruitful people by God's grace in all these things and more may we learn what it means to be fruitful just to finish I want to give you a gospel encouragement it's very easy to become discouraged by the hardness of people we see around us, especially in this city, but in this land, on this continent, in this world. Because let's be honest, people are the same everywhere, deep within. Some people might think that preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, is obsolete and has no place, that it's ineffective, it doesn't reach modern people. But according to this parable, according to Jesus, it's never been that effective, statistically. Statistically. The Lord Jesus preached the word, he spread abroad the seed, the good seed of the word, and only a fraction of people believed. And he was the best preacher that's ever been and will ever be. We need to be confident in our proclamation of the old, old story, the gospel, the message of the kingdom, and proclaim it faithfully. And say, when this is preached faithfully, people will be saved. Not everybody. Not even the majority, but by God's grace, there will be a harvest. Some will be saved and they will go on and they will mature and grow and bear fruit to the glory of God. And we will rejoice along with them. We don't know what's in people's hearts. The sower didn't know what was in the field. He just sowed his seed everywhere. We don't know either. We just sow and sow and sow and proclaim the gospel. Whatever comes up, time will tell. God knows. God knows. But our job is to proclaim the word and have confidence in preaching, proclaiming it, speaking it, and trusting God to do his work. Many, of course, will not listen. Some, some will make a, a rash emotional response. They will not last the course. Others will, will fall away in times of persecution. Others will become worldly and go back to worldliness. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. It's discouraging. But as I said, by God's grace, there will be a harvest of some when the word is preached. And remember this as well. This is my my very final point. Nobody naturally has a heart that is open to the gospel. It's important to remember that. We know, don't we, anecdotally, there have been people who have been very, very hard. Perhaps you and I were one of them. I I was certainly like that. Who were hardened to the gospel. I was in church every week. It just bounced off me. I, I paid lip service to it. I thought I believed it. I had no comprehension of it. There are people who are stridently anti-christian who've been converted their hearts were like that hard path and god somehow reaches in and does that miracle of grace he opens their heart gives them the gift of faith and they believe he prepares the soil to receive the seed some people hear the gospel thousands of times that seed every single week bounces off lands on the path is snatched away by the enemy and then one day the penny drops god's spirit moves and works and suddenly it makes sense. They say, oh, I'm saved. I'm saved. I get it. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? Look, of course, they'd heard it before. But they hadn't heard it before. Now, you can't take that for granted. If you're not a believer here today, you might have heard it a thousand times. You can't take it for granted. You'll hear it another thousand times, or even another one, one time. May God open your heart to the gospel, that you might believe and be saved. This is what we pray for. This is why we gather, have our week of prayer. We pray that God would open the hearts of unbelievers and do the work that no man can do and give them the gift of faith. Prepare that soul to receive the seed of the word. And That's what gives us hope as we preach that God is about his business and saving people. Let me finish this with this concluding one. I've gone on a long time. Sorry, guys. But let me finish this. I'm not sorry, actually, because it's the word of God. You know what I mean? Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is a a statement that says, if you can understand this, if you can comprehend this, if you can take this in, make sure that you do. Don't go away unmoved by. Don't put it off. Act upon it. If God has spoken to you today in some way through his word, act upon it. If you've got ears to hear, listen, respond. May God be gracious to us all. May we be a fruitful people. Next week, we'll come to the parables and unpack this a bit more. Let's pray and then we'll move to a time of communion.